Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. And we can't, we can't just continue to open the border. And by the way, we can't pass a bill that possibly would make it harder for Trump to do his job. They're not even trying to hide it. The Republicans' top priority is not securing the border. It's helping Donald Trump return to the White House. Also tonight, President Biden is greeted in Michigan by pro-Palestinian protesters. The mayor of Dearborn, who recently turned down a meeting with Biden's campaign, joins me tonight. Plus, NBC News begins its new Deciders Focus Group series. Pennsylvania women who voted for Trump last time talk about what they're thinking now after Trump's Supreme Court overturned women's reproductive rights. And writer, producer, director Ava DuVernay is here to discuss her new movie, Origin, which examines racism and social inequality in a unique way. And it's getting rave reviews. And we begin tonight with the undeniable reality that the modern-day Republican Party, to paraphrase pre-Trump-era Kanye, does not care about the American people. And that's not meant as an ad hominem, I promise. My father was a Reaganite. Michael Steele is my homie. But the unfortunate truth is that while there are individual Republicans here and there, the, the Michael Steeles, that care, the party writ large keeps telling us every day that they, as a party, don't care. Just yesterday, we got yet another example of just how little respect this party has for the people they supposedly represent and for every American. When Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, who was first elected to the United States Senate in 1980 and who is the Senate's most senior member, glibly told reporters that he doesn't want to pass a bill extending the federal child tax credit, which would pull millions of American children out of poverty because it would make Biden look good. Just listen to him. Passing a tax bill that uh, makes uh, the president look good, mailing out checks before the election means that he could be reelected and then we won't extend the 2017 tax bill. Now, I know that was a little hard to hear, so let me just reiterate what the 90-year-old senator said. He said that he is not inclined to pass a bipartisan tax bill which includes a $1,600 child tax credit for roughly 16 million children in low-income families because he doesn't want to mess up the chances of re-electing Donald Trump and their plan to give corporations and the wealthiest Americans yet another giant tax cut. I don't have to tell you Republican priorities are all wrong when they are bragging that they're okay with hurting 16 million low-income American kids in order to give a single manic Florida retiree, Donald Trump, the job he wants. Donald Trump, who was found liable for sexual assault, who is accused of stealing our national secrets, lying to the FBI, and orchestrating an insurrection that came very close to ending our democracy. That Donald Trump. Look, I've been telling you for a long time that this is what the Republican Party has become, but repetition is the mother of all learning. And Republicans are repeatedly telling us that they just don't care 
about anyone not named Donald Trump and, of course, their own power. And Senator Grassley is not an outlier. He is the norm. Look at Republicans and their posturing on immigration. They've spent years telling us that we must change immigration laws to stop an an immigrant invasion. It's a catastrophic emergency. Yet now, with the Biden administration and Democrats delivering a proposal with everything that's been on their wish list for a decade, as soon as tomorrow, they say, no, mm -mm, no, we can't address this issue because it, it just might help Biden. I think we need to demand fix it, solve it. And I'll tell you, there's only one way we're going to solve it. And that is to throw Joe Biden out of office to elect Donald Trump in November. Now, why would I help Joe Biden improve his dismal 33 percent when he can fix the border security on his own? This invasion is insane. We need four more years of Donald Trump. (laughs) Okay, it's not me. It's them. I mean, just think about what these men are saying. They're basically telling the American people that they can't, rather won't, do the jobs they were literally hired to do by their constituents. Because the only person who can fix this is a man who failed to fix it when he was president the first time, when Republicans had control of the White House, the Senate and the House. Let me ask you, do you think that you could walk into your job tomorrow and tell your employer, sorry, I just can't do the job that you pay me to do? Do you think it lasts long? I'd also like to point out the last person to speak, Senator Tim Scott, is a prime example of Republicans who are prostrating themselves before Trump in hopes of becoming vice president, despite the fact that Trump was willing to let the last guy who had the job get hung for disobeying his order that he violate the Constitution and break the law. The capitulation of the Republican Party is so all-consuming that they hate that the American economy is surging and that we've seen record job creation, a a manufacturing boom, wage increases and record-breaking financial markets. They are actually rooting for a market collapse at the expense of your 401k, just so Trump can get elected and he can do what? You guessed it, sign more tax cuts for the super rich. And guess who is parroting Trump's message? The aforementioned Senator Tim Scott. We want a Biden economy. No way in the world do we want a Biden economy. We want Trump tax cuts. When there's a crash, I hope it's going to be during this next 12 months, because I don't want to be Herbert Hoover. The one president, I just don't want to be Herbert Hoover. (laughs) This cultish behavior implies a profound disrespect for the American people. But like I said, they don't care. Because if they did care, they would be actually alarmed at how unpopular their policies are. For instance, voters have approved initiatives supporting reproductive rights every single time they've been on the ballot. But again, why would they listen to the American people when they can elect Donald Trump, who, according to reports, would find ways to work around Congress to ban abortion nationwide? American feminist writer Jessica Valenti explained it very well during her testimony at a recent reproductive rights briefing. The question I get asked most often is why? Why would anyone want to deliberately create a world where women are forced to be walking coffins? It is inexplicable until you understand that this has nothing to do with families or babies but enforcing a worldview that says it's women's job to be pregnant and to stay pregnant, no matter what the cost or consequence. Ignoring the American people and insulting their intelligence 
is a hella risky strategy and one that is already flashing huge danger signs for Republicans. A new Quinnipiac poll of registered voters shows that Joe Biden would beat Donald Trump in a head-to-head matchup and a growing gender gap between Biden and Trump supporters. More women in the poll said that they would support Biden over Trump in this latest survey, with 58% backing Biden and 36% backing Trump. And yet, they insist on following him like a murder of crows. Joining me now is MSNBC political analyst and former Congressman David Jolly, and Charles Blow, columnist for The New York Times and MSNBC political analyst. I'm just going to start with you, David, and point out that no less than Students for Life, the anti-abortion group, it don't have so many students in it. It's like Senator Rick Santorum and a bunch of (laughs) older white guys, but they call themselves Students for Life. So whatever, we'll just say they're Students for Life. Even they said the following. For decades, the pro-life community has advocated on behalf of vulnerable women and children in our communities. We applaud congressional efforts to expand the child tax credit. Even they say expand the child tax credit. But Grassley says, nope, that would help Biden. Your thoughts? Yeah, so look, Congress has always, the Republican Congress has always stood in the way in creating opportunities for all people, creating an economy that lifts all people. They, Republicans simply do not subscribe to that notion of economic equity, economic equality, or economic opportunity. They see a very perverted uh, economic theory, if you will. I think the, the question is this what we do know is Republicans are not going to do anything, even on their own priorities, even on a border bill, even on immigration. They simply can't function. They can't govern. And so the question is, does Joe Biden play offense on that theme, right? This is kind of a new theme for this cycle, a do-nothing Congress. Does Joe Biden actually spend resources on TV and use the bully pulpit to run against a do-nothing Congress? It was Democrats in Congress that had to keep the government open. It was Democrats that had to agree to lift our debt ceiling to pay our debts. It was Democrats that had to pass this tax package to help families. It was Democrats and Republicans in the Senate that didn't want to pass comprehensive immigration and border security legislation. So does Joe Biden go right at House Republicans in front of the American people and say, listen, the, the, the country's going in the right direction. The only problem is Republicans control the House. I need you to reelect me, Joe Biden, and kick out the Republicans from control of the House. It could be a powerful message. You know, and Charles, to that very point, because I'm not sure how I feel about the strategy of essentially putting together a deal, a bipartisan deal and there's, it's been pointed out there were no Latinos in the room. <laughs> they weren't a part of the bipartisan negotiation, but whatever. Putting together a deal that basically is just, here are Republicans. Here's all the things you said you wanted on border security for a decade. Here it is. Take it. And letting them say no and then jamming that down their throats. I'm not sure I agree with the, the, the contents of the deal they're willing to sign, but he is willing to sign it. He's willing to do it. And they're still saying we can't do that because if we solve the problem we say is catastrophic in an emergency, It'll help him. <laughs> so we have to help. We have to help the other guy. We have to help Trump. Make it make sense. Well, I mean, I think what we're looking at is some sort of legislative guerrilla warfare effort at regime change. What they're trying to do is to pretend that there is suffering where there isn't and to increase actual suffering by doing nothing to prevent it. And if they believe that if they can amp up the suffering, amp up the message of suffering in the country, make people feel bad about an economy that is actually good, make people feel bad about an immigration policy that is not moving forward, not because it can't, but because they won't. If they can amp up that misery, they believe that that will redound to a negative effect for President Biden and a positive one for Donald Trump. 
And it is that callous, but also that clear. Um, the, the, the only question is, how much will American voters buy of this? Uh, how long will you let them not do something to fix a problem that can be fixed? Are you willing to simply wait it out, to endure the suffering that the country will endure for the next 11 months in the hopes that the person that you want to vote for is not uh, 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 convicted or in prison in the hopes that that person actually win in the hope that you could maintain control of the house. It is a enormous gamble and we're gambling with the safety and security of the country and the MAGA base is allowing this to happen. They're allowing it to happen, uh, David. And it's also, it is probably the greatest magic trick in history to do a reverse French revolution. We're in the United States. The broke people fight for the super rich harder than they fight for themselves. Uh, let me give you an example. The, Donald Trump is, he claims, I'm super rich. I'm so rich. I don't even need to go to the big money because I'm so rich. Okay. His legal bills, his $50 million in legal bills, he ain't paying them. That's getting paid by his working class supporters. And even his wife's glam. Let me show you, Don, let me show you uh, Melania Trump. This is Melania Trump coming out of her mom's funeral, God rest her mom's uh, spirit, in Palm Beach last month. This is on January 18th. Here she is coming out of the thing in her, in her glam, right? And Trump has to get in the other car. She's been there at that funeral. That's the only time we've seen her in months. She, Trump has been in court all over from D.C. to Atlanta. We have not seen Melania. She hasn't been on the campaign trail with, it, with him. She hasn't been anywhere. We have not seen her at all. And yet Trump's campaign packs, which take money from working class Trump supporters and the MAGA hats they buy, they have been paying Melania's fashion consultant $368,000 a year. That is more money than most Americans will ever earn annually in their lives. His supporters are gleefully willing to give him money to pay his legal bills and to pay for his wife's glam. And they don't even get to see her. What is that about? Uh, it's a cult following, which uh, it's a cultural movement that is not wrapped on premises of substance or ideology, but this following of Donald Trump and, you know, $50 million on lawyers. That's a lot of money on lawyers. I actually care less that that donors might have been duped because I don't think they were. I think they buy this notion that his court cases are part of his politics. I'd rather see an audit of how the 50 million was spent because I don't know how you can spend 50 million dollars on lawyers. I'm guessing Melania got an Internet degree one weekend. and We're going to find out she's billed 10 million against Donald Trump's legal fees for this. I, who knows what's going on in the spin side? It's a grift. It's a graft. We know that. But the important thing is a failure of substance. It is Donald Trump and Republicans that are standing in the way of their donors and their voters' number one priority, border security and immigration. Think about that. All of their xenophobia is getting worse because Republicans won't do anything about it. And, and that is kind of the, the, the catch here, if you will, for Republicans. They are the ones who are insisting on failure. They're rooting against the economy right now. They're rooting for that wealth gap to get larger and larger and larger against their very supporters. They're, they're rooting for the border to get worse. And to your point, Joy, it is a big deal for Joe Biden to sign off on such a an aggressive border security package. But I think it's, it's because where Republicans have lost control of the reproductive freedom issue with Dobbs and Roe, Democrats have actually seen they're not just upside down 20 points on immigration, they're upside down 30. 
And Joe Biden needs to fix that. And he's willing to give Republicans a gift. And Republicans are saying, no, thank you. But the thing is, I, I see that. I totally get the politics of that. But Charles, normally at the end of the day, your self-interest is your belly and your children's belly. That's what you love is your kids. Republicans locally in, the, in these states are saying you can't have summer food money for your kids. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, she sees no need to add money to a program that helps food insecure youth when childhood obesity has become an epidemic. Put them on a diet. Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen, I don't believe in welfare. How are people willing to let their kids not have food in the summer? And they don't punish Republicans for that. But Trump and his people are saying we only want him back in to get a big old tax cut for the super rich. Why is that a good deal for any working class voter? Because it is what W.E.B. Du Bois recognized and wrote about, which was that wealthy um, planners of the time were panicked that poor whites and poor blacks would, would come together and that they would be a force against them. And so they convinced poor white people that there was a currency in whiteness. And you might be poor, but at least you were not black. And by setting up that kind of artificial separation, they convinced them to go along with the interests of the wealthy planters. We're seeing that same phenomenon play out again. It only it now it is 2024. And it's also now just including brown migrants. It is unbelievable how that works. Javid Jolly, Charles Blow, thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, President Biden visits Battleground Michigan as his administration's full-throated support for Israel as it wages war in Gaza, threatens Biden's support from Arab American and Muslim voters here at home. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Folks, look, we now have, in large part because of you and organized labor, the strongest economy in the whole damn world. We do. We do. That was President Biden speaking to auto workers today in the critical battleground state of Michigan, celebrating his recent endorsement by the United Auto Workers Union. But while that was happening, just outside the building, pro-Palestinian protesters rallied against the president, angry over his administration's actions and messaging during Israel's war in Gaza. Michigan was a state that helped propel Biden to the White House in 2020. He won it by just 154,000 votes. But this time around, it may be his biggest obstacle to re-election as it is home to one of the largest Arab American and Muslim populations in the country, with about 300,000 people who claim ancestry from the Middle East or North Africa. And while historically that community has overwhelmingly voted Democratic, Democratic, a lot of them are now saying they are ready to abandon Biden at the polls this November because of his unwavering support for Israel 
as it prosecutes its war in the wake of the October 7 Hamas attack and Biden's refusal to call for a ceasefire in the conflict that has killed more than 27,000 Gazans, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Joining me now is the mayor of Dearborn, Michigan, Abdullah Hamoud. And Mayor Hamoud, thank you so much for being here. So just to set the stage for our audience to understand, about 54 percent of the population of your city, Dearborn, is Arab American. About three quarters of Dearborn voters supported Biden in 2020. Um, He got more than 30,000 votes from Dearborn alone. Give me the temperature of how people are feeling. We know there were protests when President Biden uh, visited today. But what's the temperature of your community right now regarding the election? Thank you for having me on. I think the word that I often hear most frequently from my residents is betrayal. We were promised a president who wanted to bring back good moral conscience to the White House, to bring back decency. And what we found with the ongoing genocide is a president who is aiding, abetting, defending, and funding the genocide of the Palestinian people. You know, I had a resident who came to a council meeting who has now lost over 80 family members. And so my message to the president is what would you tell that individual? So did you, I know, previously turned down uh, the Biden campaign, wanted to meet with you. You did not meet with them. Would, would you meet with them? Do you think it would be helpful for you to deliver that message in person? You know, I turned down a meeting with the campaign manager because I don't believe that this is a moment for electoral politics. Over the course of, you know, going on close to 120 days now, over 27,000 Palestinians have been killed. These are innocent men, women, and children. Uh, over 2 million have been displaced. And so for us, Palestinian lives should not be measured in poll numbers. If there is a delegation of policymakers, of decision makers, that would like to meet to heed the concerns of this community to talk about a change of course, that is a meeting that we're willing to take. So let's talk about some of the policy changes. I, I sat in on a, 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 The Economist did a sort of briefing today about this plan that is apparently sort of working behind the scenes, that there's a lot of conversation in the administration uh, about how aggressively to sort of change course or, or alter the course of what's happening in the Middle East, potentially recognizing a Palestinian state. You've had the Biden administration now sanction settlers who are committing violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. Do those kind of policy changes make a difference in your view to your community? What what is left of the quote unquote Palestinian state that they now want to recognize? It has been demolished from coast to coast right now. If you look at Gaza, over 70% of the infrastructure has been decimated. And so for me, if you want to recognize anything, begin by recognizing the humanity of the Palestinian people. There should be nobody who believes that any innocent man, woman, or child should be killed. And as it pertains to the sanctions against settlers, from my understanding, it's only applying to four settlers and non-American settlers. In fact, there are tens of thousands of radical settlers who are American citizens. Take the famous story of Jacob, who came from New York, flew over to Sheikh Jarrah and stole a Palestinian woman's home. And he said, I quote, if I don't steal it, somebody else will. My question to the president is what accountability will that person have to face? What consequences would Jacob have to face? And has the White House reached out to you? I mean, you are the mayor of Dearborn. You would think it would be a conversation they want to have. Have they reached out and said, you know what, come to the White House, let's have a conversation? There has been no invitation to the White House. Um, But what I can say is there's dialogue happening between individuals about what would a policy conversation uh, uh, outcome look like. And from my understanding, the only condition that I've said is I need individuals who can come to the table, who have decision making authority and who are open to changing course. Because if somebody wants to come to just say that they've heard from the American community and use that as a talking point, I'm not here to be used in somebody's political calculation. 
So when, when we were planning this segment and we were going to talk about it, we knew people were going to talk to you. The, the sort of biggest question I, I do tend to get uh, when I'm speaking with members of your community is, what about the alternative, Donald Trump? I mean, we don't really know what he would thinks about this whole situation. He's said very little, but we do know his policies have been deeply anti-Muslim and anti-Arab. It, it, it seems likely that he would probably allow even more violence on the West Bank and Gaza if he was president. What do your voters think about him? You know, I, I think to just use your language, you said Donald Trump would just allow more violence, meaning that President Biden allows violence as well. And so for me, I understand that Trump is a threat to American democracy. But the question should be put back into the laps of President Biden. What will you do to earn the trust and respect of your voters? I've run for office several times. And as the candidate, the onus and responsibility is on me to demonstrate why I deserve that trust and respect of the citizens that I'm trying to represent. And so that's what President Biden has to show. How will he change course? All all we've seen is a volatile Middle East. All we've seen is endless bombing campaign. And it's time to close that chapter once and for all. Uh, I think you've been very clear. Uh, Dearborn, Michigan Mayor Abdullah Hamoud, uh, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. And I hope the White House gives you a call. And if he gives you a call and you had that conversation, please come back and let us know how that goes. Thank you um, for having me, Naiwa. Of course. And up next, my esteemed colleague, Yamiche Alcindor, joins me to talk about a brand new NBC focus group of women in Pennsylvania who backed Trump in the past, but who also support reproductive rights. It's a fascinating dichotomy. And we're going to talk about it in a sec. Among the issues expected to play a huge role in this year's elections is a woman's right to bodily autonomy. The overturning of Roe v. Wade angered women across the political spectrum, including Trump supporters. But how will it impact their decision in the voting booth? NBC News held a focus group in the swing state of Pennsylvania with that very group, women voters who chose Trump in 2020 but do not agree with the Supreme Court's decision. The focus group was produced in collaboration with Engages, Syracuse University, and Sago as part of the NBC News Deciders focus group series. Their answers were pretty stark. I, I know I'm a woman and I, I should have more of a say about it, but I honestly, it doesn't matter that much to me as it might matter to someone else. Yeah, it's, it's not one of my high concerns. It's not that important. I hate to say it, but it's, overall, it's probably not going to determine who I vote for. It means nothing in the grand scheme of everything to me. I'm going to vote who for who I think is going to do the best for my family. Joining me now is Yamiche Alcindor, NBC News Washington correspondent. Uh, surprising, fascinating stuff. I guess maybe not so surprising. Uh, tell me what, you, what what was found in this focus group. Give me more info here. Well, Joy, this was a fascinating focus group because, as we said, this is women who don't agree with overturning Roe v. Wade, who voted for Trump and who live in Pennsylvania. And they—the headline out of this was they do not believe that Trump is to blame for overturning Roe v. Wade, even though he was the person who put the justices on the Supreme Court who were able to get Roe v. Wade overturned. And even though he's proudly said, I am proud that I overturned Roe v. Wade, it's really, really stark. I want to play a moment for you that really made me gas. Take a listen. By a show of fingers, who would say former President Trump is at least partially responsible for Roe v. Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court? So none of you would say that he's at least partially responsible for it. Maybe just a little bit. 
because of his Supreme Court nominations. Now, Joy, what? take that. <laughs> What is a very, very good question to that. Now, they were twisting themselves into pretzels, saying that they still support President Trump, and they were blaming it in part Democrats for the reason why Roe was being overturned. Of course, Democrats who have been pushing for abortion access. Take a listen to that moment. We nominated the people to, to the Supreme Court who were more conservative, but we could go back and say that Ruth Bader Ginsburg could have stepped off the Supreme Court earlier and they could have got the liberal judge. But she didn't she didn't resign. So there you have okay. it, Joy. They are okay. really uh, pointing to Democrats. Go ahead. <laughs> I, you know, it, it, it is amazing. OK, so they blame Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I think there was a lot of liberals who would also say they wish she'd resigned so that President Obama could have filled her seat. I, I, I think that's neither here nor there. But, but the idea that they don't blame Trump at all. I mean, he did pick the three people who wound up on the court. Do they not think he knew that they had an abortion stance that they had? Is that it? Did they think that he just didn't know what their views were, were on abortion? They, it's interesting. They said that they thought either he maybe wanted these people, but maybe didn't really understand what was going on with Roe v. Wade and didn't know that they were going to do this, or they're just not taking at face value the fact that he's saying he's proud of it. Because on the campaign trail, President Trump, former President Trump, is saying he's proud. And some of them said, well, really, he's just saying that for the crowds. He doesn't really mean it. They also were making, making light of the fact that they don't like the way sometimes that he talks about women. Some of them said he was rude, that he was disrespectful to women. But they also said, well, he's a man of a certain generation, so that's how he acts. So again, twisting themselves into pretzels to staunchly still support him. The other thing that's interesting is that they said that abortion isn't a top issue for them, that even though they, yeah. they disagree with Roe, they said that the border security issues and it's immigration are their topics, and also the economy and it's and, and inflation. So that's sort of what we heard over and over again from these women, who the majority of them said that they will vote for former President Trump. No matter what. Let me ask you this. Was, was, were they asked about the E. Jean Carroll case, about him being accused of sexual assault. They were asked about it, and most of them said that they did not agree with the verdict. They also said that that E. Jean Carroll was given too much money um, and that they really thought that this was really all a publicity stunt. In some ways, they were buying into this idea that former President Trump is a victim and that he is someone who's co constantly being attacked by left-wing people and that E. Jean Carroll is part of this grand conspiracy theory in their head. But Joy, I also want to bring to your attention the fact that these women who say that they thought the Dobbs decision was decided wrongly, they agree with the idea that a national abortion ban could be in effect. They said that they would support the idea of a national abortion ban if it was up to 15 weeks. So if it was 12 weeks or six weeks, they might not agree with that. But for 15 weeks, they did. So take a listen to some of that sound. If all the states were at 15 weeks and it was a national 15-week ban, who would support that? Show of fingers. Every state had to be at 15 weeks. With the stipulations, right? Yeah, with all three stipulations, with those exceptions. So seven of you. Okay, seven of you would be comfortable as long as all the states were at 15 weeks. Yeah. I, I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. Uh, Yamiche Alcindor, this is fascinating stuff. Thank you for bringing it to us. A reminder to all of you, those women are going to vote. Make sure you vote, too. Thank you, Yamish Alcindor. Well done. And coming up, stay right there, because coming up, the amazing Ava DuVernay joins me to talk about her critically acclaimed, thought-provoking new movie, Origin. We'll be right back.
On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Racism is bound to the history of our nation and continues to rear its ugly head today. But in Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cased, The Origins of Our Discontents, she looks beyond racism as an explanation for America's division to a worldwide case system that creates artificial rankings to subjugate groups of people, connecting America's racism to the Holocaust and to the rigid and entrenched case system in India. Acclaimed director Ava DuVernay has taken this groundbreaking work and brought it to life in the movie Origin. Following Wilkerson, played by Ingenue Ellis Taylor, here's a scene from the film, cutting from the present day to a reenactment of Nazi book burning in Germany. In Germany, there's memorials to nearly everyone victimized by the Nazis. And there's no entry sign, no, no gate. It's just open both day and night. Just standing to bear witness. Twenty thousand books were lost at night. Books filled with imagination, ideas, and history. Go to your home as soon as you can. You'll be safer there. It's worth noting that Cast, about which I've been lovingly corrected as to the pronunciation, has made America's growing long list of banned books. Joining me now is the film's writer and director, Ava DuVernay. Uh, it is so good to see you, Ava. And uh, first of all, congratulations on the film. It is a beautiful film. Uh, and it's brilliant in the way it interweaves these different systems. Uh, the Dalit, uh, you know, the people who were at the bottom of Indian society, the Holocaust and American racism. Talk about bringing this voluminous book to life as a film. 
Well, thank you for having me. The book is a nonfiction book. Isabel Wilkerson beautifully weaves together different moments in history, facts, figures. It's an anthropological thesis, really. And so as I was reading it, I was taken by the information in the book, but I was also very emotionally impacted by what I'd read. And so in contemplating making it a film, um, the question was, uh, you know, is it documentary? Is it narrative? And I chose it to be a narrative feature film with actors because that's the form I use to evoke the most empathy. And, um, and so we use the film to portray her life and work, and the film follows her research as she is writing the book, and you go through her personal trials and tribulations, and you also learn all about cast. And the thing that's so interesting is that um, you start the book, and you really get to know Isabel Wilkerson on a very personal level, her relationships, her loss, and you center a lot of that opening in her growing and really traumatizing connection to the story of Trayvon Martin. And, and, and she and I share that, right? That, 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 that boy and the impact that he had and hearing that 911 call and his death, how that changed sort of, it, it, you know, her perspective on it, that opening was a choice. Why did you make that choice? Well, you know, Isabel Wilkerson herself, you know, graciously allowed me to interview her and ask her any question I wanted for uh, the two years that I was writing the piece. It was during COVID, so most of it was on Zoom, but there were hours-long conversations in which she was very gracious, very generous in sharing her personal life with me, but also teaching me about her research and her, her very extensive methods to kind of delve deeper and cast. And a part of that was the impetus for it, a big moment for her, as, um, as, 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 as I heard her share, was— the verdict, the day of the verdict, when the Trayvon Martin's uh, killer uh, was uh, was set free. And uh, and that got her thinking about that case and its relationship to race in America and really wanting to dive deeper into finding there's something else going on here when you have a Latino man protecting an all-white community and stalking and killing a black boy. What is that? Is that race? Is that something else? And so it was a part of um, the journey to writing the book is contemplating Trayvon Martin's uh, death. Yeah. And what do you want what do you want people to take away from this? Because we are in this wild era where Isabel Wilkerson's work is being banned, where 1619 Project is being banned. People are passing laws to stop people from reading history and understanding, particularly black history and LGBTQ history. But it's intense. What do you want people to walk out of that theater with in this time? Well, it was important for us. We made the film independently. We made the film in 37 days on three continents. Um, we, we broke all of the rules in terms of the ways in which we're told, make this inside of a studio system, do it this way, don't say this, don't press too hard. We were able to freely express what we wanted to and to accelerate the timeline of the movie so that it's out in this election year, uh, because we want to contribute to a conversation that I don't feel is happening hardly enough, as it is um, an urgent matter uh, for folks to raise their voices and to talk about books being being banned, uh, history being rewritten or completely disregarded, uh, ridiculous statements being made by candidates and politicians that are going unchallenged, um, underreporting of some of the uh, asinine comments being made on the campaign trail. And, uh, and so, as an artist, all I can do is make my art. I'm a filmmaker. I make films. But the hope is that uh, it contributes to a growing national conversation about a resistance to some of these ideas. Yeah. And, and by the way, Anjanou Ellis Heller is brilliant. And people should just that alone uh, is something that should compel you into the theater. Very quickly, before I let you go, talk about this making the film the way you did, as you said, outside the studio system. That is challenging. How do you meet that challenge? Um, and for those who, who see that as a goal, 
How difficult is it to get through creating a film and creating art outside of that system? Well, it's not easy to make it outside of the studio system, but it's possible. You know, the very presence of Anjanou Ellis Taylor, our incredible leading lady, and her presence in a film, um, as her first lead in a film, speaks to the kind of control that studios and corporations have over who are the leads in movies. And so, if you want to combat that, if you want to express freely, you have to find a way to raise money outside of the studio system. This, fun this film was funded by philanthropists, philanthropic organiza organizations, the Ford Foundation, Lorene Powell Jobs, Melinda Gates, Ann Wojcinski, Chris Paul, the NBA star, and his wife Jada, and through their foundation, like-minded people coming together to say, you know what, we care about films that deal with justice and dignity and cultural chains. We will fund this. And so that's what we did. Well, the cast, C-A-S-T, is brilliant. The book, C-A-S-T-E, is brilliant, as are you, Ava DuVernay. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here. And everybody go see this film. Thank you for having me, It Joy. is called Origin. Thank you very much. Everybody fill those theaters. Yes. Thanks. Fill those theaters this weekend. All right. Before we go, we do have some incredibly sad news to report. Legendary broadcaster Thank you, Joe Madison, Thank the Black you. Eagle, has passed away. According to his family, he was at home surrounded by family. On his website, they wrote, Joe dedicated his life to fighting for all of those who are undervalued, underestimated and marginalized. On air, he often posed the question, what are you going to do about it? Although he is no longer with us, we hope you will join us in answering that call by continuing to be proactive in the fight against injustice. Joe Madison, the Black Eagle, was 74. So as hopefully all of you know, today, February 1st, is the start of Black History Month, a commemoration that began as Negro History Week in 1926. The idea came from Carter G. Woodson, whose parents had been enslaved in Virginia. Despite his humble origins, he went on to earn a PhD in history from Harvard. Sorry, Christopher Rufo. And he fixated on the idea that newly freed Black Americans needed to know their own history and contributions to this country in order to truly live full lives. If a race has no history, Dr. Woodson said, if it has no worthwhile tradition, it becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world and it stands in danger of being exterminated. Woodson chose February as the month to celebrate black history, since it's the month when both Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass were born, and their birthdays were already celebrated in black households. Black History Month 2024 is being celebrated amidst a literal war on black history and black and LGBTQ literature in the U.S., fomented on behalf, ironically, of what's left of Lincoln's political party, the Republicans who in the 1920s were in the process of transforming from the party of abolition and post-Civil War black and tan reconstruction into the post-1877 compromise party of big business, as the Lily White faction worked to systematically evict blacks and liberal whites in favor of northern industrialists and white supremacists. By the time the backlash against pro-civil rights Democratic presidents JFK and Lyndon Johnson drove Southern whites into the once hated GOP in the late 1960s and early 70s, black voters had all but abandoned Republicans in favor of the formerly white nationalist Democratic Party. The party flip-flop was complete. The 1964 Democratic Convention in Atlantic City where Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi Freedom Democrats slammed the all-white Mississippi Democratic Party, was the hinge point when the Republican Party began its long, slow march 
to absorbing the white vote in the South exactly 60 years ago. This is why history is important, because it is our story, the story of change and progress, but also the dangers of regression. America is in a period today that is not unlike the anti-immigrant, anti-black early 20th century, when women were battling, sadly, along segregated lines for the right to vote. And when the Daughters of the Confederacy, the old 20th century version of Moms for Liberty, were fighting to whitewash the Confederacy, deploy the Confederate flag around the country, and make black history and forward-leaning American history disappear. In short, we have been here before, and we made it out. So here's to making it through again. So happy Black History Month to all you readers, a month that reminds us to remember. And before I go, a quick reminder that my contribution to Black memory, Medgar and Murley, is officially out next week. I'll be on The View Monday morning and The Tamron Hall Show in the afternoon and then The Late Show with Stephen Colbert on Tuesday. So be sure to tune in to all the things. And if you'd like to come see me on my book tour, you can go to msnbc.com backslash Medgar and Murley for tickets. And for those of you in St. Louis, good news. We have a new larger location. So more tickets are now available for the February 10th event. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.